Good morning again. When you get to Luke 18, say Jesus is better. When we finish reading the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and because we are so grateful for the word that God gives us, you guys will respond with thanks be to God. Starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, but beat his breast, saying, I'm sorry, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're glad that you're here today, and um, we are ending a three-week series that we've entitled Attitude Adjustment. And basically what we've done is we've looked at the scriptures and sort of what they say um, about our attitudes. And we started with defining our attitudes this way. We said our attitude is the lens through which we look at life. And so um, we had those glasses and, you know, bitterness was written on it or cynical or entitled. And we said that our attitude is the way that we view everything. And so if we have certain glasses on, that's essentially all that we're going to see. And we said that, that the scriptures actually teach a lot about our attitudes. And we looked in Philippians chapter 2 and we learned actually what Jesus' attitude was. Have this mind among yourselves that's yours in Christ Jesus. Or have this attitude, the same attitude as Jesus. And then last week, um, we sort of did boots on the ground and just touched on one topic, um, complaining. And hopefully your week was a little less complaining <laughs> this week uh, in, in light of that. And, and what we said was a complaining attitude is really cured by, by a content heart. That the reason why we complain with our mouth is because we are not um, content in our heart. And, and this week, as, as we close this out, um, I just want to lay two quick things before you. We're, we're ending the series this week, but we pray that uh, the work that God's doing in your life doesn't end. Amen. And so next week, we're actually going to start our Christmas series uh, entitled, Why He Came. And so uh, the reason why we lay this before you is statistically... People uh, around Christmas and Easter time who are non-Christians and don't attend church are like way more likely to actually go to church (laughs) because it's sort of like just this default thing like, oh yeah, I'll go to church, it's Christmas or it's Easter. So we say that we're starting this series so that you can be intentional, maybe invite some of those friends and things like that that you've been praying for who, who don't know Christ or who haven't been in church or who don't have a church home. But secondly, um, we're ending the series, but we pray that, that you continue the work in your life. 
And I read a book about five years ago um, by a guy by the name of Dr. James McDonald called Lord Change My Attitude Before It's Too Late. And so that book and then having three kids ages six, four, and two sort of birthed a series on attitude. It's kind of crazy how that works, right? And so if you want to continue this study um, on your own, this book has been uh, massively influential in sort of birthing the series and doing all of that. But as we end the series this week, I wanted to end it with um, the most important attitude in our life. And, 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 and just imagine with me for a moment as I set this up. And I've said this before, but just sort of um, imagine this. So, so my wife and I have been married. We'll be married 10 years um, this coming April, um, a decade. Yeah, man, all right. Woohoo! We did it, babe. We did it, right? Um, so, but imagine this. So let's say 10 years is coming, and we're going to go all out. We're going to make this happen, and I'm going to just express my love for her. I'm going to do the whole honey-do list, like everything that's broke. I'm going to fix all of that. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to get the flowers. I'm going to just go all out, and the moment happens, I express my love for her, and she asks me the question, um, why? Why did you do this? You know, I, so much, I know we've been married 10 years, but, but why did you do this? And, and, and this is my response. Um, well, I, I love you so much. I love everything about you. Um, I, love, I love your blonde hair. I love your blue eyes. I love your fair skin. I love you. Those of you that are giggling and, and laughing know, know my wife, right? Um, my wife has brown hair uh, and, and brown eyes, and she likes acts of service more than gifts, so she wouldn't really appreciate the flowers and all of that stuff. So... My expression of love was determined or dictated by the way in which I, I viewed my wife. And that's the way I express my love. That's exactly like the parable that Jesus tells us today and the way that we are ending our series. Many of us have a certain image and view of God. And so we view God this way, therefore, the way that I live my life, the way that I treat people, and the way that I think that I, quote, please him, is determined by the way that I view him. And what's so important about this is this isn't something that you can just keep in a box. It's not like, oh, I view God this way, and it doesn't affect any other area of my life. Jesus actually teaches us in, in Luke chapter 10, he says these words, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So look at the way that that's laid out. God, love God, and then love people. Or you could say it this way. The way that you view and love God will determine and dictate the way that you view and love people. So this is the thesis today. By far the most important attitude that we can have in our life is our attitude towards God. What, what lens am I looking through to which I view God? And I I think that's a profound question. And as a matter of fact, this week I just sort of sent something out on social media and just asked, what do you think are common lenses uh, in, in, way that, in, in ways that people view God? What's, what's your picture 
um, of God. And so there was all kinds of responses that really boiled down to, to these common ones. The first one was this, um, a rule maker. I think that's probably pretty common. People view God as, you know, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this. A rule maker. He's the guy who establishes the rules and also enforces them as well. And you, you may say, oh, well, I've never really said that I view God as a rule maker, but, but think about it this way. Do you know more about what God is against than what he is for? Because if you know that, then, then you would view God as, as a rule maker. And you better believe that affects the way that you live life or treat other people. The second common one was this, a puppet master, right? Just sort of like dictating everything and you don't really have a choice. And, you know, I've heard people say it's God's an angry kid with a magnifying glass, sort of like burning ants, right? Like this is all for his cosmic drama and pleasure. And we, that's, that's a dictator, you know, is how you view that. So a rule maker, a puppet master, or, or how about this, a genie, right? I do this, I ask about this sort of magic, you know, I got to do this. And then I get, I heard one guy say, a lot of people view God as, as a cosmic slot machine. That's good. You know, put it in, pull the lever, say the prayer, and then get this. The next one was this, uh, an urgent care physician. I thought that was great. I mean, because when suffering the only time you go to the urgent care or the emergency room is when you have an emergency. And oftentimes people only approach God or view God through the lens of tragedy and suffering or something happens and boy, now we need to pray and, and all those are good. But, but if that's the ultimate lens, then that dictates your, your view of God. But then the last thing was this, the, the big man upstairs. And what's funny is every time that somebody says that, it's sort of like a, a laxed view of God. You know, the big man upstairs. When, when I get to heaven, we're going to have a cold one together and we're going to go fishing. <laughs> you know, the big man upstairs, you know. You better believe that that dictates how you live. So, so if our attitude towards God is by far the most important attitude of our life, that leads us now to our text. In this parable, and a parable is an earthly story that has a heavenly point, Jesus is, is giving us an illustration. He's, he's the greatest preacher that ever lived, and he's a storyteller. And he's telling us a story about two people who have two different attitudes towards God. They, they view God differently. But he gives us the thesis. Look in verse 9. Have your Bible. Look in verse 9. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Do you see it? There's my argument right there. It's in the text. They viewed themselves and their relationship with God a certain way. Therefore, it determined and dictated their relationship towards other people. And, and his audience is, is the Pharisees, the, the religious elite, the, the Ivy League. I mean, these guys were it. 
They were clean and and nice and neat on the outside. And if there was a religious dispute in the town, they actually had so much influence that, that the Roman government would actually bargain and plead with them about certain laws and issues because of how much influence they had there in town. And so, I mean, these guys, you know, I mean, they had more Awana sashes than you could ever imagine, man. I mean, they had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus numbers, Deuteronomy memorized. These guys were it. And Jesus sort of flips the script and says, be careful, because there's really two attitudes that you can have towards God. And the first attitude or lens that Jesus shows us is a religious attitude, a religious lens to look through, if you will. I'm living by faith and not by sight because I can't see a thing with these things on, okay? Right? But the first one is, is, is the Pharisee. Now, I need to clarify something. The word religion is not a bad word. The scriptures use it actually in a positive way. In James, it says this is a pure and right religion, that you should take care of widows and orphans and do justice. The word religion comes from the Latin word, means to bind oneself to, to bind yourself to the teachings of. But Jesus is is using this in in a negative sense. In verse 9, those who trusted in themselves. So here's how I'm defining religion. Religion in the negative sense is my goodness earns God's favor and approval. What I do determines who I am. My behavior produces my beliefs. And Jesus tells us about this this Pharisee, this attitude towards God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these two characters and we're going to look at the trademarks of what this looks like. And you need to be asking yourself, is, is this the lens through which I, I view God? Is, is this how I see God? A religious attitude, what does that look like? Well, the first thing is this. A religious attitude focuses on the outside. Focuses on the outside. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, oh God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Why are you thankful and why are you not like them? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, this guy's, this guy's doing it, right? But Jesus is teaching us something. And what you've got to understand is Pharisee for us is the bad guys in the scripture, but there's a reason why Jesus is using them as the example because they were the standard in his day. I mean, if you did a survey in town of, man, who's making it to heaven and who spend eternity with God and who's God happy with, everybody would say, well, the Pharisees for sure. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. If these two guys were running for political office, the Pharisee and the tax collector, who do you think we're voting for and is going to get in office? The Pharisee. And Jesus says, you're you're viewing it 
You're viewing it wrong. Why? Because we view it from the outside. Jesus would say later on in the Gospels to, to the Pharisees, he would literally turn to the crowd and tell the crowd to be weary and a warning of the Pharisees because they are white-washed tombs that look great on the outside and are dead on the inside. Um, many of you know I, was, I worked part-time at a funeral home there in Donovan. I was the in-house chaplain. And so uh, my, my father-in-law was the, the coroner of the town and was certified and all of that, did the embalming and everything. And I came to realize, man, that's a beautiful trade because you're able to provide goods and services to a family in a time of need. And oftentimes, um, death brings tragedy and, and suffering. And so a lot of people viewed their loved one in a sometimes horrendous environment the last time they saw them. But what a funeral director gets to do is sort of um, make that last moment and that memory beautiful of that loved one. And, and my father-in-law said the best compliment that, that you could ever get as a funeral director is they just look like they're sleeping. It, it looks like mom. It looks like dad. We're so pleased with this. This was such a great service. Now, now, they look good on the outside but they're dead on the inside. Listen, this should serve as a massive warning for us that Jesus says that there's something that you can do, that you can actually do stuff and know stuff and say the right stuff and be involved in stuff and on the outside look like that you have it all together and on the inside you are dead and far away from God because a religious attitude thinks I can change from the outside in. That's a religious attitude. A religious attitude focuses on the outside. So ask yourself, am I concerned, overly concerned with appearance, reputation, my socioeconomic status? And if those get threatened, then you see me get angry because we will always defend our idols. And so Jesus is saying a religious attitude focuses on the outside. The second thing is this, a religious attitude prays for prominence, and that is spelled correctly. Prays for prominence. Look at the text. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now, there's something going on in, in the language, and you probably have a footnote there that drops down and explains sort of what's happening in the language. It's not just that the Pharisee stood there and prayed in the language, it literally means that he walked up like Conor McGregor winning the championship belt and stood right there and started to pray thus. That's what Jesus is saying. And they're in the temple. And, and actually in the language, it means that, that he walked up to the front of the temple walked past everybody and sort of strutted up to get his position and began to pray. <clears throat> I love what <clears throat> Matthew Henry says 
about this. <clears throat> he says that this is a discourse. This man does not pray. He speaks words. For this is not a prayer. It is a speech. Um, my dad was a traveling evangelist. And oftentimes, <clears throat> I grew up, it's kind of crazy when you think about it now. I grew up staying in other people's homes a lot. <laughs> like, So my dad would come into town, preach a revival there at the church, and some great family in the church would, would house us. And most of the time, it was someone who had a position in the church, a, a deacon or something like that. Well, one time, my family stayed at a home, and it was, you know, a Deacon Bob guy or something like that. And it's early in the morning before church, and my brother John and my brother Josh are there at the table. And you got to know my brother John. He's, you know, sort of clean, tidy. He's into it. And my brother Josh is just like could fall off a cliff chasing a butterfly. Like, oh, look, ah, he's just that guy, okay? And so they're there at the table, and I guess this guy thought this was his moment and utters a discourse at the table of prayer, you know. I mean, we have, you know, bowls of fruity pebbles in front of us, okay, right? And he is, oh, God, we thank you, oh, God. My brother Josh um, falls asleep during the prayer, elbow goes off the table and face in, just right into the fruity pebbles, man, right? That's the kind of prayer that Jesus is saying that this man is praying. And look at the words, God, and then he doesn't mention God anymore. Why? Because you don't have to in a prayer like this. And then look at how many times he says the word I. Five times. God wants, let's get that, hurry up and get this prayer out. God, and then we're not going back there. But now let's, let's talk about me, if you will. And then in the language, it actually means he prayed to himself, which is perfect because he is worshiping himself. The, the prayer is about him. And listen, you can do this one or two ways. You can do it in the prideful, puffed up way where you sort of try to tell God about your achievements or you do it in sort of the self-pity God, you know, it's always been, and nobody ever, and I'm gonna, and it's, I know, and wah, wah, wah. And it's appropriate that Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do you know what that means? It means for God's name to be at the center. So a religious attitude focuses on the outside, praise for prominence, and then the third thing is this, looks down on others. I mean, this, listen to this. God, I thank you I'm not like other people. It was just right out the gate, right? What type of other people, a Pharisee? Well, I'm glad you asked. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or let's just get down to it in church today, even like this tax collector, right? Here, here at Westside, we say, be, be very weary of language that involves phrases like those people. Because that's, that's what he's doing. I mean, I mean, he talks about everything. I mean, people who struggle with sexual sin or all of that. So, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. And think about it. When we pray and thank God for our 
warm house or what he's given us? Are we thanking him that we're not like the poor? Oh my. I mean, this can creep in in ways that I don't think we even realize. But we try to mask it. We mask it. I bet you if you ask the Pharisee, he would say, well, my life is just different. It's just different than those other people. And in reality, when we say things like, well, I'm just different, I'm different than those people, in our heart of hearts, what we're actually meaning by different is is better. I'm I'm different, and in reality, I'm, I'm better because I'm, I'm not them. Notice that the tax collector can't even lift his eyes to heaven. The Pharisee um, can't lift his eyes to heaven because he's too busy looking down on other people. And isn't it interesting that in today's society, we are fascinated with the news, and we are fascinated with coworkers and family members and all of their problems, because when we maximize other people's sins, it's a great way to minimize our own. So if I can focus my life on on you and your problems and the deal with my spouse is, and when you ask religious people what's wrong with the world or other people, they'll give you a big list. But when you ask them what's wrong with them, they got to kind of think about it. Because, I don't know, I'm just different. Is it too early in the morning for this or should we continue, right? My attitude towards God is the most important attitude in my life. And a religious attitude focuses on the outside, prays for prominence, looks down on others. But the last thing is this, a religious attitude keeps score. Well, why are you different from the unjust adulterers and even this tax collector? Glad you asked. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give tithes, not just tithes, but I give tithes of all that I have. That's why I'm different from the tax collector. Do you know what he's doing? Nowhere in the Bible will you find it a command to do what he's doing. You will find some commands to fast and to give, but not to the detail that he's talking about. And this is my definition of of legalism or sort of fundamentalism. uh, Fundamentalism is, is when you're more stricter than God is. That's, that's being legalistic, is that you draw a line in the sand and you say, well, if God's word said this, then it must be so much better to then add this to it and then do this. And because I do that, that separates me even more and even more and even more. And do you know what religious people like to do? They like to do this in all their relationships. Let's see here. Go over to this person's house and, well, look at their house. Oh, and their grandkids are going to what college? Great. Glad you got a retirement party. I've been working here for 20 years. Always sizing stuff up. Keeping score. Because when I view God as a rule maker and when I view God as wanting to earn his approval, guess what I do with other people? I say, I'll do this 
when you do X, Y, and Z. And when you fail at that, I'm going to bring that up, and you need to make your good outweigh your bad. Do you know what that is? That's a contract is what that is. But the Bible doesn't speak of contracts. It speaks of covenants. We need contracts in our life, your cell phone bill, all that type of stuff. But when it comes to how I view God, it's not contractual, it's covenantal. That I don't have to earn that. And honestly, here's what Jesus is teaching. We think that rebellion is just hell-bent and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, yes, that, that's a form of rebellion. But here's what Jesus is teaching about the Pharisee. Ultimately, a religious attitude is a rebellious attitude because sin is so wicked that you can break the commands of God by trying to keep all the commands of God. That's the story of the prodigal son and the elder brother. The prodigal turns his back on the father, demands all of his rights, and turns and runs away. And then comes back to his father's loving embrace. But do you know what the elder brother does? The elder brother stomps out onto the front porch and says, Do you know all that he did? He's the one in the family and in the business and he never got it right and in school he always failed and every time at Thanksgiving, whenever he, you always go over there and do that and I never got any of this and I've never done that and you've never given me this and you've never said those things to me because I'm different than him. And do you know what the father says? Everything that I've ever had has always been yours. You didn't get all of this because of what you've done. You got all of this because I gave it to you. Do you understand how dangerous it is what Jesus is teaching us? The way in which we view God determines and dictates every other relationship in our life, which leads us to the second attitude and lens the tax collector, and the tax collector has on this lens, the lens of repentance. That's how he's viewing God. Not through the lens of, of religion, but through the lens of repentance. And, and repentance seems to be a dirty word now, sort of in our society. But, but some of you actually work off of a religious definition of repentance. Here's what repentance is. Turning from sin and trusting in Christ. Most of us only do half the definition. Turn from sin. Turn from sin. Turn from sin. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. That's great. We need those. That's super important. But you have to turn from something and turn to something. That's why the behavior never changes. That's why the attitude never changes because you keep trying to take off one pair of glasses and you just keep putting on another pair and you just keep putting on another pair. But you're not picking up the lens of Jesus Christ. And do you know how controversial it would have been to have heard this story told? I mean, honestly, I, don't, I would have to say like um, a, a Republican president went down or a Democratic president or, or something of a high standard that we view in our society went to the temple to pray and then a Islamic terrorist. Is it offensive yet? Because it should be. Jesus is showing us a stark contrast, the absolute opposite person. 
Do you know who a tax collector was? Tax collector had a foot in both worlds. They worked for the Roman government. The Roman government said, oh, yeah, you want our protection, kind of like Michael Corleone? Well, then you're going to pay us 10% of everything. And a tax collector would knock on your door and say, hey, um, the Roman government needs 15%. And they would keep the five. They were despised. They weren't even allowed certain places. Families would disown a tax collector. But this tax collector, Jesus is saying, has a repentant attitude towards God. What does that look like? The first thing is this. A repentant attitude focuses on the inside. The inside, not the outside. Do you know what I've found being a pastor and and doing this thing for a long time? You don't have to go to broken people and people who know that they are broken and tell them that they are broken. They know somebody who's struggling in their marriage, somebody who has an addiction, somebody who, somebody who lives that outward lifestyle that we would go, oh yeah, that's, whoa, man, that's it. You don't have to tell those people that they're broken. They know. Do you know who the most difficult person is to convince that they need a savior? A religious person. Grown up in church all their life. Why, why do I need God? Maybe, maybe as an accessory. And there's a difference in remorse and repentance, and I see this all the time. Remorse is sad about the consequences and the devastation and all of that. Repentance is broken over who they've hurt. That's why David in Psalm 51, after he has committed adultery, literally sent a man to be killed, says, against you and you only have I sinned. That's that's a repentant heart. It focuses on the inside. I, I said this story in the first service. And I probably shouldn't have, but I'm going to say it in the second one anyway. So I, um, I, I had a rebellious attitude. And one time I went to church camp and took a pack of Marlboro cigarettes and got caught, right, at church camp. So it was like, oh, I mean, it was just like a big deal. I mean, the counselor found it and it was like, oh, my goodness. Dude dangled me over the fire, man. And I mean, I might as well have brought a bomb to church camp or something like, I mean, cigarettes. And I'll never forget, man. He looked me right in the eye and he just said, I better see you at the altar tonight. And I was like, so what do you think I did? I mean, they played one lick on the piano and I ran smooth down that mug and was like right here, man, right? I'm just being honest with you, okay? And his big scene, and oh man, he got caught with this. Oh, oh my God. Oh. And you know what I thought when I was down there? Man, I could smoke a cigarette right now. <laughs> I'm just being honest with y'all. Oh God, get me out of this situation. Oh God, give me my family back. Oh God, oh God. All on the outside. None of it focused on the inside. See, the gospel is this, that you can't save yourself. Oprah lied to you, the secret lied to you, all that trash lied to you. Jesus doesn't help you save your life. He saves you. And the only thing you contribute is your sin. That's it. The gospel is not that we change from the outside in, but from the inside out. That's what Jesus is teaching us about the tax collector. The second thing is this. A repentant attitude focuses on the inside. A repentant attitude knows where it stands. Look, but the tax collector 
standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The translation a sinner is a poor translation. In the original language, it's a sign of a definite article, which actually says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. Interesting. Compare the two. The Pharisee is focusing on other people's problems. The tax collector could care less because he sees God for who he is and in light of that sees himself for who he is. Do you know the approach and response to everybody in the scriptures when God shows up? They hit the mat like they're going to die. I mean, I mean, we're going to celebrate Christmas coming up, right? What does Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and all these guys do when an angel shows up? Don't kill me, right? They're terrified. Why? Because of the holy nature of God. And it's interesting, man, when you take off those glasses and put on the proper glasses and see God for who he is, you see yourself for who you are. It it focuses on, on the inside, and then you know where you stand. Listen, you don't have to jockey for position anymore. You don't have to oust this person and oh, I gotta do this and we got this coming up and I'm gonna get I gotta get in there and I gotta show. You don't have to fight for that anymore. Why? Because you know where you stand with God. The third thing is this knows where it stands, but then begs for payment. God have God be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's what I want you to do. You can underline the word merciful in your neighbor's Bible. That's okay, you can write in your Bible and put Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 there. Jesus uses a certain word for merciful. Um, Question. Jesus is a big deal in the Bible, right? Is Jesus a big deal in the Bible? Yeah, he's a big deal, like the star of it. All right, that's a pretty big deal. So when Jesus says something and uses a certain word, we should probably go, that's a big deal. Jesus doesn't use the regular word for mercy or merciful. We know what that is. That's in the Old Testament all the time. The only other time it's used in Scripture, the only other time, Besides here is Hebrews 2.17. And it says this. For this reason, he had to be made like them, speaking of Jesus, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That's the word that Jesus uses, atonement. Do you know what the atonement was in the Old Testament? It's where they slaughtered the goat and shed the blood on the altar and the mercy seat as a symbolism for the covering of the sins. And the great high priest would go in once a year at Yom Kippur and make atonement for the sins of the people. And only one guy could go in, and that was the great high priest. But there was shed blood. Jesus doesn't just say that the tax collector says God, look over my sins. God, don't give me the consequences. God, don't punish me. He says, God, you've got to pay for this. Because I can't. I know where I stand. You see, a religious mindset really thinks that you can earn it. And when you think that you can earn it, you start to negotiate with God. You start to say things like, well, God, I'll do this. I'll go to church, get in the small group, start to serve, but don't let anything happen to my family. And don't let any of this stuff, and, and when that happens, what are you doing? You start negotiating with God. Uh-uh, God, why, no, no, uh-uh. Why is this happening? Because I'm doing this and I'm doing, and you're keeping score. 
But a repentant attitude says everything that I have is already God's anyway. The family that I have, the life that I have, it's all yours anyway. And why would Jesus use that word? He used the word that he's teaching in the parable because he knows that he's the one who's going to pay for it. Do you know how you can fail today? You can leave here today and go, God, thank you that I'm not like the Pharisee. But then you're the Pharisee. You failed in that aspect. And the only thing that Jesus gives us, the only option that you have is to reject that payment and to say that I can still earn it and I'm thankful I'm not like those guys. Or you can beg and you can plead for the mercy of the blood of Jesus Christ. That there is a fountain that flows from Emmanuel's veins and all the sinners dipped underneath that stream are cleansed of their guilty stains. It's why we sing about the blood. It's why we pray about the blood. It's why we plead the blood of Christ because we beg for the payment, which leads to the last thing. A repentant attitude receives approval. We don't know how controversial this is as to what Jesus is saying. So I'm going to do something fun here. In verse 14, I'm going to read, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And when I get through reading that, I want you to gasp out loud because he is looking at the Pharisees and he says the worst person that you despise in society who's broken, overlooked, and outcast, he actually gets the approval of God and the Pharisee leaves condemned. So let's try it. Let's have fun in church. Here we go. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. I mean, they would have gasped. This man? The tax collector? What's interesting is any psychologist or anybody that studies the brain will tell you this, that, that when you walked in the lobby and then when you came in here and sat down, your brain is doing stuff that you're not aware of. One of the things that your brain is doing is that when it walks into a room, it scans it to make sure that you're safe. It just does. So you walk into a room and you immediately scan the room to to see if you're safe or not. Because if you're not safe and the group doesn't accept you, you will chunk deuces to that situation and leave, right? That's why social anxiety, I don't know what they're thinking about, I don't know. Because, because everybody is seeking approval. Everyone. And that's why you work so hard on that football field or that baseball field or that basketball court because you wanted to walk off that court and you wanted your daddy to tell you, good job. And the reason why you keep the house so tidy and everything's in order is because you want your mom to look at you and to say, I love you. Everybody is searching for approval. And Jesus says, a repentant attitude goes to bed at night knowing that the creator of the cosmos is pleased with you because of the payment that was laid down through the person of Jesus Christ. And you know what's interesting? When Jesus says the word justified, it's actually in the perfect participle passive. For the two of you that cares what that means, it's in the passive meaning that somebody did it for him, and it's in the perfect participle meaning that he leaves and is forever justified in the sight of God. 
Now, show me somebody who understands that, and I will show you someone who is comfortable with other relationships and is comfortable at their workplace because they know that they don't have to earn everybody else's approval because the only approval that matters is the approval of God. That's why Jesus' baptism is our baptism. When the Father looks at the Son and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Because many of us think, that God saved us, but he doesn't really like us. That he just saved us because he was supposed to. But the reality is, is that God not only saved you, but that he delights in you and that he loves you and cherishes you and longs for a relationship to be with you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done in and through Christ. Do you see the difference of the attitudes that Jesus is teaching us? One commentator put it this way as I close. This parable teaches, among other things, that the decisive thing is not the past record, whether good or bad, but the present attitude towards God. Every moment before God is an opportunity to have life determined by the future rather than the past. Oh, man, that is good news, and ain't nobody hearing what I'm saying in here today, man. That your interaction with God through a religious lens is always on the merit of your past behavior. That's why you're constantly living in guilt and constantly living in shame. But your relationship with God through a repentant lens is not based upon your past failures, but your future present love in Christ. That changes your attitude for all of eternity. It changes how you interact with your spouse, how you parent your kids, how you go to work, how you view the world. So as the band comes and leads us in a time of response, I have three questions to ask you at the close of this series. The first question is this, what lens are you currently viewing God through? Is it the rule maker? Is it the genie? Is it the urgent care physician? What is it? Some of us even project the relationship with our earthly parents onto our heavenly father. That's why Jesus teaches us our father in heaven, not on earth, in heaven. Are you projecting that? The second thing is this. How is this affecting the way that you live your life? Are you riddled with anxiety, riddled with worry because I've got to control, because I've got to do this, because I've got to earn this? Am I constantly rebelling because I'm afraid that deep down inside, if people really know who I am, then they really won't love me and they really won't accept me. So I push people away before they can hurt me. I hurt them. Because the way that I'm viewing God determines the way that I'm viewing life, which leads to the last thing. How is this view of God affecting your view of people? Do you use people? Do you hurt people? Are you constantly looking down on people? Those people. Because my attitude towards God is the most important attitude in my life. I'm going to have you stand where you're at, and you have an insert in your bulletin for a corporate prayer. Stand where you're at, and we're going to close the series with this being our prayer and our confession before God. I would draw your attention to that. And Westside, let's lift our voice aloud to God today. Almighty God, I confess that I have viewed you wrongly. 
I confess that at times I have tried to earn your favor in my life by my good works. I confess all the wrong that I have done and turn to embrace Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I confess that I cannot change myself. I ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would renew my mind, soften my heart, and strengthen my hands for the work of your kingdom. I receive by faith the grace that you offer through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. May I hear and believe the words of Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. Amen. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer. Though we end this series, we know that the work continues. God, I pray as those who come to partake in communion today, that we would leave the attitude and the lens that we currently have of you down here at the table as we pick up the body broken and the blood shed for us, that we would pick up the lens of repentance. Because God, the most important attitude that we can have in our life is our attitude towards you. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you come forward and partake in communion as you feel led today?